All right, thank you. Okay, today we're continuing with our, I don't know, sometimes it does that little announcement, sometimes it doesn't. I don't understand the rhyme or rhythm behind it. But anyway, we're continuing our series today in our hard sayings of the Bible uh, series. And let me tell you, this, this one for me is a really hard one. This is a hard one. It's not that it's hard because it's difficult to analyze or interpret and understand it's, or figure out what Jesus is saying here, but it's, it's the ramifications of what Jesus is saying. To me personally, it's really very challenging. Now, let me tell you why. Disappointment. Disappointment is a common human expression. If, if something doesn't work according to our plan, right, we feel disappointment. For example, I, I don't know how many of you have ever applied for a job uh, that you didn't get, a job that you really wanted. And, and well, of, of course, you're going to feel disappointment if you don't get that job or, or this. When I was a senior in high school, I was cut from the, uh, as a senior, I was cut from the varsity basketball team. I, I lost a, uh, my spot to a sophomore who really was much better than I was. So I totally understand the decision. But, but the coach saw an opportunity to develop this, this kid over the next three years. And I was old <laughs> as a senior. So and he, I, I, lost, I lost a position on the team as a result of that. And let me tell you, I was devastated. I was devastated. I, I love basketball and I'd convinced myself that I was pretty good at it. And, and then I got cut and it was a mess for a long while after that. And you know what? I don't think anyone would have blamed me. I really don't. I don't think that my parents, they expressed nothing but sympathy for me. They expressed sorrow. They knew what it meant to me. Okay. Uh, now, now here's the hard part. And again, I, I, I dare say that none of us would ever consider sorrow or disappointment to be sin. Okay, but is there ever a point? Is there ever a point where disappointment becomes sinful? All right? Is there a universe where my disappointment in being cut from the basketball team would be sinful? Can you imagine a scenario? And I, I can see already now the wheels turning in some of your minds here. Some of you might be thinking, what are you talking about? How could that possibly be? But let me just, let me just put a pin in that for a moment. Okay, let me put a pin in that thought uh, for, for just a second. Some of you might see where I'm going. Some of you might be shocked that I'm even suggesting that, that disappointment could be sinful. But the hard saying that we're dealing with today has an element of disappointment in it, has a big element of disappointment. Uh, one of the subjects of the passage walks away disappointed, and dare I say his disappointment has something sinful about it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to introduce you to the passage, and we're going to wrestle with it for a bit. We're going to try and pick it apart, and then we're going to circle back to the, the sad sack of a senior that I was back in, in high school when I didn't make the basketball team. We're going to see if we can't make an application there. Maybe there's something you can apply from your own lives as well, too, okay? The verse comes in the context of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Remember this account? This is, this is in the Gospel of Mark, verse 17, and we read this. Uh, again, folks online, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to see that very well, but this is from Mark 10, 17 and following, if you have something you want to follow along with. This is Mark 10, 17 and following. It says... And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's not the question that gives us so much concern here, but it's the response whereby Jesus, he says in verse 21, I'm skipping ahead a bit and don't worry, we'll, we'll circle back to the verses in between. But Jesus ultimately says this in response to the question. This is verse 21. You lack one thing, Jesus is telling. So remember, this is in response to what must I do to inherit eternal life, good teacher? You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come 
follow me. And there it is. Here's a guy. He asks Jesus how to get eternal life. And Jesus answers him by saying, go sell all you have. Now, that's the first problematic thing about this particular hard saying, this response, because I don't think there's an insignificant number of people who have read this verse and thought, is Jesus asking me to sell everything I have? Is that really what's required of me to go sell everything I have? Does Jesus call us to live lives at or below the poverty line? Uh, and, and to that, I'm pretty sure some of you were saying, heavens, no, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not, because it can't be saying that. I know, I know plenty of wealthy Christians, if I could say that. And some of you might be saying, I aspire myself to be wealthy. You know, I hope that's not what it's saying, right? So let me just let the cat out of the bag. No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But what is he saying? What is he saying? Because again, if you just read that much, you might be thinking, is Jesus calling me to something more than I'm comfortable with? So as I say each week, you have to consider the whole context. It's not, this is not a simple A plus B equals C question and answer from Jesus. He's leading this guy somewhere. He's leading him somewhere. He's, he's taking, or, uh, talk, uh, taking this rich young ruler on a mental journey. So let's see where he's going. This encounter, again, is found in three of the four Gospels, and we're looking at the one in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 10. So let's start from the beginning of this encounter. Um, and again, you can follow along with me or rewind back here to Mark 10, 17 and following. And again, he says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever had the compulsion to share your faith with somebody, to, to evangelize uh, your neighbors or your family or share the gospel with them, if someone came up to me asking this question, I dare say, that's a dream come true. I, I, have, I have been Christian for a long time, and I've never once had someone come up to me asking this kind of a question. Hey, what do I have to do to get to heaven? I'm like, oh, I'm glad you asked that. I happen to know the answer. Hot dog, this is going to be easy. Sit down, have a seat. It's never this easy, is it? I mean, it's never this easy. Again, I've been a Christian a long time, and I've never had a conversation that starts like this. So at first pass, we, we think we know how this conversation is going to go. All right, Jesus, let's seal the deal here. This is a gift. He just walked right up to you. This is going to be easy. He wants to know how to get to heaven. Do your thing. I mean, after all, look at his posture. Look at his posture. This is a man of great wealth, probably of great power as well. He humbles himself. So a powerful man humbles himself. He kneels down before Jesus and asks him, what do I have to do to, to be a follower of you, Jesus? What do I have to do? What more could he ask for? But what does Jesus say? First of all, he doesn't directly answer his question. The rich young ruler called him good teacher, and Jesus doesn't let him get past that. Verse 18, why, uh, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So at least, at least for a moment, Jesus evades the question and asks him, why do you call me good? What's he doing here? You sort of want to say to Jesus, whoa, easy there, Jesus. You're being a little heavy-handed for coming right out of the gate here. We want this guy on our, our side, don't we? Let's, let's go easy on him. Again, if you and I were writing a book on evangelism, this, you know, is this one of our conversation starters? Maybe for some of you, you know. I know you think you're a good person, but you're actually not, right? You know, if we started our conversations that way, someone might say, hey, listen, there's a better way to, to start a conversation, okay? Is it, uh, you know, it, but, um, excuse me, it's awfully hard, though, to disagree with Jesus. He's Jesus. 
but is that something you wrestle with? Is it really true that no one is good except for God? Why would he start the conversation this way? By saying, no one is good except for God. How many times have you said in reference to someone, be they a Christian or not? They're a good person. They're a good person. You know, are they just mistaken? If Jesus says there's no one good, are they just mistaken? Christ tells this man, no one is good except for God alone. The apostle Paul affirms the idea, Romans 3, where he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. So why the disparity? Are, are there good people in the world? Are there good people in the world or not? Sure, right? You say sure. Anyone else say sure? It's like, no, no. So what's, why the disparity? What's Jesus talking about here when he says there's no one good? It all, it all depends. It all depends on what we're defining as our standard for good, doesn't it? It all depends. And by one standard, the most important standard of all, hang on, by the most important standard of all, you aren't good. You aren't good. But the way we use good in our vernacular is that we make it a relative word. Something can only be deemed good or bad against some standard. So if we say that, that we're good people and we think we're good people, what, what's the standard by which we're judging ourselves? Ourselves, right? We're judging ourselves by ourselves. We tend to do that, judge ourselves by ourselves amongst ourselves. Did you have a question, Dean? I know you do. Oh, I already see the hands coming up. If we don't call Jesus good, who is that your question? If we don't call Jesus good, yeah. And again, you have to think about, we have to think about the context of what he's doing here. You know, is he, he's taking this guy on a journey here. He's trying to get him to answer the question, not in reference to who Jesus is, but he's trying to get him, he's trying to get the rich young ruler to look at himself. Okay, because ultimately, yeah, we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is fully God, fully man. And we know, yes, Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is good. But what's Jesus' primary concern here? Who's, who's he? In, we're about to read this in a second. He loved this man, and he's trying to get him to look at, look at yourself. Take a good, hard look at yourself first before we go any further, okay? So don't get distracted by the fact that, well, Jesus is good. Yes, you're absolutely right but he's trying to get him to look at himself first, okay? Was that sort of your question too, Trudy? Okay, all right. He's asking, what is good? We're defining good. Yes, because look where, look where the conversation goes, okay? We, we, my, my, for instance, my son, one of my, one of my sons will often say something to me, Dad, I got an 80 on my quiz today. I think, he says, but it was the third highest grade in the class, <laughs> right? And so I'm sure the college admissions offices will be very impressed by that, right? We do this all the time. This is a sort of, and this is where Jesus is trying to get him to look. He's trying to, as, a, as full-grown responsible adults, if someone of us, is someone among us is behaving in a more godless manner than I am, I can point to that person and say, that's bad, right? And the assumption is, if that's bad and I'm not doing it, then I'm good. Because this is what, this is what the rich young ruler is trying to do here. He's not trying to, focus and look and, and observe how good Jesus is. He's trying to see how good I am. How good am I, Jesus? And he's even trying to say, dad, look, I got an 80. 
That's pretty good, right? It's the third highest grade in the class. This weekend, uh, we, we took our kids skiing for the first time. We took them, to, we, we did, uh, they had the, you know, it was a holiday. Uh, they, so they had Friday and Monday off. So we took them uh, to this place outside of North Carolina or in North Carolina, just outside of Asheville. And uh, it's fun when you watch the Olympic skiers. I don't know if any of you are watching the Olympics right now. It's very impressive, especially downhill and, and whatnot. And it was, it was fun to see how my kids approached uh, skiing for the first time. I had, I had one son who said, you know what? I'm not going to go faster than two miles per hour until I get this all figured out first. And then I'll feel comfortable about going downhill. My other son, on the other hand, he's, <laughs> he just said, you know what? I'll figure it out as I go. And he started at the top of the hill <laughs> and he went straight down the hill, straight down, didn't go from side to side. And I th- I'm pretty sure he's about to hurt somebody, uh, if not himself. And he was just like, wow, <laughs> down the- we, couldn't, we couldn't keep up with him. And I thought, oh my word, what's happening here? I'm pretty sure he set a world record, didn't even want to. He just went <laughs> straight down the hill. And the only way he knew to stop was if he fell over. But again, I was impressed with the fact that he, he got up on the first try and he just went straight down the hill as a well, he's a pretty good skier, right? <laughs> That's right. He's a pretty good skier in, in, in relation to other beginners, right? He got it right away, but, but is he a good skier in relation to the Olympic skier? No. If we put him up against the Olympic skier, he might've still beat him quite honestly because he was going that fast down the hill. Uh, but again, it's all relative because we're thinking, we're, we're comparing ourselves among ourselves. We do this all the time. But again, against the most important standard of all, against the standard of the holy, holy, holiness of God, we're miserable. We are bad. We're all bad. Okay. Does that much make sense? Do you see where this is just the setup? This is the setup to the start of the conversation here with this rich young ruler. By, By the most important standard of all, sir, you're not good. I know you think you are, but listen, in comparison to God, you're not good because look where, the, look where the guy goes next, okay? Why is Jesus doing this? It's awfully interesting that he, he, he does this in response to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's like he's taking him on a detour, but we're going to see exactly where Jesus is going in a second, and it's not a detour. What must I do? And Jesus says, before you unfold your case, I need you to understand something first. Please articulate for me what your understanding of good is. Hello, good teacher. What do you mean good? What? Define what you mean by good. He's challenging the man's assumption of how he defines good. This is where Jesus puts his target. And we we shouldn't be surprised uh, or ask, why didn't Jesus say, you're right, I'm good. He could have said that, right? He could have said, I'm good. I'm good. In fact, I'm God incarnate. That's how good I am. I'm perfect. He didn't say that. He's not denying his own goodness here. Okay. What Jesus wanted to focus on was what his understanding of good was. So let's look where he steers the conversation. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, there's a lot of strange things about this answer. Again, and we'd expect Jesus to evangelize perfectly. Uh, And we'd expect him to present a plan of salvation that probably doesn't start with, okay, first things first, got to keep the law. Okay, wait a minute. (laughs) That's not my, that's not, that's not been my understanding of how to evangelize. It's, It's not, how do you keep the law? How do I get to heaven? How well are you keeping the law? You know what? There's, uh, this might come as a surprise to you. Um, 
they're actually, I don't be in my notes next, but that's okay. There's two ways to get to heaven. Does that surprise you? There are two ways to get to heaven. So there's option one. You can be born perfect. You can live perfectly throughout your whole life and not just live perfectly and not sin, but you can be perfectly righteous your entire life. Your entire life, you can do that. How many among us have done that? Only one. Only Jesus. I thought Dean was like, I've done it. That's what it looked like. He said, how many have done that? Got it. I'm a darn good skier too. All right. Where are you going with this, Jesus? Again, if there's anyone who understood that the law uh, was, was, was capable of saving no one, it was Jesus. Yet he asks, what must I do? Yet when the guy asks, what must I do? This is what we talked about last week too. You know, this is where Jesus points, the law. What must I do? He points him to the law. That's what you must do. You got to do the law, okay? You got to do the law. And again, uh, when Jesus starts to give a review of the law, this is also interesting, very interesting how Jesus does this. When Jesus starts to review the law, where does he start? Does he start with the first commandment? No. Look where he starts. He starts with do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud or uh, honor your father or mother. Those are essentially commandments five through 10. That's where he starts. Those are generally referred to as the second tablet of the law, the second tablet. Okay, those commandments are, di are directed at man's relationship with man. Okay, man's relationship, don't kill anybody, don't commit adultery, uh, don't steal, don't lie. People, person to person. Okay, let's compare ourselves to ourselves and we think we're pretty good. I've never killed anybody, I'm pretty good. Okay, the first table of the law focuses on man's relationship with God. Okay. Commandments one through four deal with man and God. Five through 10 deal with man through man and man. Now hold on to that thought for a minute because Jesus first takes him to the second table of the law. Why? Why is he pointing to this, this guy, the law at all? That's why I said a second ago, because again, there's two ways you can live perfectly. You can be born perfectly. Good luck with that. Good luck even being born perfectly because we're told in the Psalms that you're conceived and say, I was born in sin. Okay. So you have a, a hard time maintaining the law. Your only option there is to by getting in on someone else's righteousness, getting in on someone else's record, okay? But how does the rich young ruler respond? He seems to breathe a sigh of relief, doesn't he? He's like, oh, oh, yeah, I've done all that, good teacher. I've done all of it. I've never killed anybody. I've, you know, I've never committed adultery. No, I've never, I, I, I probably never have lied. Again, you'd think that he'd start to see the slippery slope here, right? And he says, teacher, all these I've kept since from my youth. You know, I'm a great downhill skier, right? I've done all this since I was young. And once again, here's what's interesting about how Jesus handled this. He could have replied in so many different ways, including, were you around when I preached the Sermon on the Mount? Were you around when I told you exactly what it means to murder? Even if you've, even if you've thought about it, even if you hated your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. Even if you've looked lustfully upon someone and, and committed no act, you've still, you're, you're still guilty of, of, of breaking the law, okay? If you've ever, again, if you've ever done, even thought about these things, you're, you're guilty. He could have said that, but again, Jesus is leading him somewhere here. He's, he's committed to getting this guy to see it on his own, hopefully, okay? Look how Jesus replies. And I love this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. 
And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, what in the world is Jesus doing? Is he giving us another command? Is this really how you get to heaven? Now, Jesus is not setting forth forth a new universal law here for anyone who wants to get in the kingdom of, of, of God. They have to divest themselves of personal property and give it away. That's not the point. That's not the point. That's not what's being said here. So what's he doing? This man has fooled himself into thinking that he was good enough to satisfy the demands of the law. Jesus is telling him, you think you've upheld the law? You you haven't even begun to uphold the law. Jesus now is, is, if I could say this cleverly, circling back around to that first half of the law, the first table, because the, the ones that he, he skipped over, he's saying, okay, you keep the Ten Commandments. Let's see, what's the first commandment? What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And we're saying, okay, young man, let, let's see if you have any other gods before me. It seems to me that you, you worship and serve your money. The thing that makes you get up in the morning is your wealth. Knowing that, are you willing to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul? In other words, he's asking him, do you have any gods that rank ahead of the one true God? No? Then go sell all you have. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, then come to me. And then we'll go to the second commandment, right? And see how you do on that one. You see what happens in verse 22. He says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. He was disappointed. He was awfully disappointed for he had great possessions. Remember where we started with disappointment? Guess who's really disappointed here? <laughs> Why? Why is he so disappointed? Because Jesus is teaching him a lesson he doesn't want to hear. And the lesson is, there seems to be something in his life that drives him. There seems to be something in his life that he he can't live without. There seems to be something in his life that he's unwilling to part with. So in this instance, why is it that Jesus is asking the rich young ruler to go sell everything? To reveal what it is. To reveal what is your God? What is your God? What, what, what is commandment one? What is your God? Who is your God? The thing that separates this guy from God was his money, his wealth. He made for himself an idol out of his money. Now, back to where we started, disappointment. Like I said, this, this is the real hard part of this. This is the real hard part of this. It, it's, it, is it wrong to be disappointed when, when something doesn't turn out the way you'd hope? Let me start off by saying, no, it's not a sin. I was disappointed when I didn't make the team. So when does it become a sin? Possible to turn making the basketball team into a God. Is it possible? Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's possible. When does it cross the line? And and that's the really hard part because I don't know where that line is for you. In, In a perfect world, Okay, in a perfect world, I would say, oh, man, I didn't make the team, but that's okay because I serve a God who loves me. He's got a great plan for me. I'm not disappointed that I didn't make the team at all. That'd be a perfect response. But how often do we have a response like that when we're disappointed? Never. 
almost never. But again, if, if we were perfectly aligned and in tune with what God is doing in our lives, we wouldn't feel this. But again, why do we feel disappointed? Why? Because it's not going according to the way that I envision things going. I, I think I know. I think I know how my life is supposed to go. I think I know God. And when, and when it just goes off track that much, that's why I feel disappointment, okay? We almost never respond that way. Does that mean it's sin? Do you, do you know, do you know how, how this reveals how deep we are in sin? Do you see how profoundly deep our problem is? John Calvin said that we're little idol factories. We're little idol factories. Do you see how easy it is for, to turn anything, anything into an idol? And here's my point. I, I don't think scripture lays, for out, lays out for us a timetable on how long is permissible to feel disappointed about something before it, turns into, before it turns into an idol. I think the harsh reality is that our hearts are so inclined to make an idol out of anything that of course we feel disappointment when something doesn't go our way. Now, I do have to make one distinction here. One distinction. I'm not suggesting that all disappointment is sin. For example, I don't believe it's sinful to grieve someone's death. I don't, I don't believe it's sinful to, to grieve over, over someone doing something evil. We can observe these things and feel sadness and disappointment over them because it, it's the effects of a fallen world. We see something out of order that, that is working outside of the order that God established. We call that righteous sorrow or righteous disappointment. It's why Jesus weeped at the tomb of Lazarus, because he observed something that wasn't as it should be according to God's order, okay? So there's that sense that, yes, of course we feel disappointment. Of course we feel sorrow in those situations, because again, God, God's plan is perfect. God's, God's, uh, God's design is perfect. And when something veers off of that, it should disappoint us. It should make us sad. But most of the time for you and me, this isn't where our hearts and heads are. We have such an inclination to make something good out to be the ultimate. And if we can't live without the thing that we've made the ultimate, then we feel disappointment, just like the rich young ruler. We do this all the time, all the time. And again, this is not for me, this is not for me to, 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 to beat you over the head with a no, you're never supposed to feel disappointed. Again, we live in a fallen world. We're going to feel it. But again, how long do we hang on to that disappointment? How, how long do we let it then guide our, our, our very behavior for, for weeks, for months, for years on end? And when that's the case, then we have to really stop and check ourselves and say, what have I made of this thing? What have I made of this thing that I'm so disappointed about? Because the bottom line of what Jesus is saying here, the only alternative to the gospel, the only alternative to the gospel is idolatry. You may not be worshiping the one true God, but you are worshiping something. You either believe in the true God or you're a slave to something that you treat as a God, but really isn't. And when things don't work out the way you design them to work out, this is why we feel disappointment. Okay, J.I. Packer said, here's a great definition for idolatry. Idolatry is the transferring worship and homage to some power or object other than God, the creator. In other words, more simply stated, idolatry is anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Okay, so for the rich young ruler, it was wealth. That's why we shouldn't look at that verse and say, ah, is something wrong with wealth? No, it was what he had made of wealth. He was trying to put wealth in a place that only could be occupied by God alone. 
okay? If you took away his wealth, he was nothing. If you took away his wealth, he had no identity, okay? And this is where it starts to get uncomfortable because we have to look at ourselves now. Look at ourselves and say, what, what might that thing be? What is the thing? If you took that away from me, suddenly I'm nothing. If you took that away from me, suddenly I can't recover. Is there anything in your life like that? We should hold on loosely to everything that we've got knowing that it could all go away tomorrow. And if that's the case, what are you left with? What are you left with? Hopefully with the knowledge of a God who loves you and a God who, whose identity your, rest, your, your identity would rest in, okay? So he, again, here's what this looks like in your life. It looks, it looks like in a really practical, tangible manner for, for us. The reason any, any of us do anything wrong the reason that for any problem that we, we have that, that stems from sin, the reason for any flaw or brokenness in our life is always because we're, we're starting to try and worship something else, even for a moment. The only alternative to worshiping impurity, the one, one good, true God is idolatry. That's the principle that Jesus is, is getting at here. You know, why, why would we lie? Why would we lie about something? Why would we fail to love our neighbor? Why would we fail to love our children or fail to be generous? Why would we be selfish? Typically, when we answer those questions, we always say, well, because we're sinners and we're weak and we're flawed. And yes, that's true. But if we look at it the way that Jesus tells the rich young ruler in light of the first commandment, we say, if we fail to do those things, if we fail to love or be generous or if I'm ever anxious or being selfish, it's because we've made something else to be the ultimate. Okay, and, and this is what we need to ask ourselves, because what we typically do when we blow it in some manner is when we fall in sin, we ask ourselves, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What should I do next time that would make me not do this? Or what, would I, what should I not do? Or what should I do? It, and again, always focuses around action. What, what do I need to do? Right. But again, what what Jesus is getting at here is 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 not to psych ourselves out and make ourselves stop, stop sinning, but addressing the bigger issue. You know, when we feel like we find ourselves feeling that we have no choice but to sin, our response should be, look for the idol. Look for that thing. Look for whatever it is that's causing us to, to do this. So again, let's take it back to my, my senior year of high school. Let's say I was so devastated that I didn't make the team that I started to, to resent and even hate my coach. Let's just say I couldn't stop feeling bitterness toward the coach to the point that I, I started trash talking him to everybody. He doesn't know what he's doing, right? He's a terrible coach anyway. And let's just say that remains that way for a long time. And I can't let it go. Now, I might add, he might be a terrible coach. He's not. But let's just say he was. He might have made the wrong decision. He might have wronged me. But nevertheless, I can't let it go to the point that I don't even want to see his face or hear his name mentioned. At this point, it would seem that I'm enslaved to bitterness. How did I get there? How did I get there? Because I've made something so much out of making the basketball team. I've, I've built that up so much that I can't but be bitter. I can't help but be, but be hateful. The reason I'm enslaved to bitterness in that scenario is not because I got cut from the basketball team, even though it might've been the wrong decision, right? But the reason the bitterness is, not there, is, is, there, is not because I got cut, the bitterness is there not because I got cut, but because what my heart is making of the thing that I lost. You see, I believe the coach robbed me of something and I can't get past it because I feel what, what, what I've lost, I've got to have. 
That's the thing I've got to have in order to make me complete and make me feel like this, that my identity is, is in place. And you can look at this from the other way too. I, I, could have, I could have not had any bitterness towards the coach at all. I could have put it on me and said, I'm terrible. I'm a loser. I hate myself. I'm no good at basketball. I'm no good at anything. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I'm beating myself up now because of, I've made something, something that is good. I've made that to be the ultimate, the thing that I have to absolutely have in order to, to feel like I'm complete. Okay. And again, this is just basketball, but again, this is what, this is what we have to do as believers. Whenever we find ourselves, you're clutching onto bitterness too long. If you find yourself in a season of bitterness, you need to stop and ask yourself, why, why am I feeling this way? Is it because I've made something, something that is something good out to be the ultimate, made it to be the best idols are good things turned into something that you've got to have. When something good is made to be the best and therefore becomes a deity, becomes your focus, that's when it's an idol, okay? And for the rich young ruler, wealth, again, wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it was the one thing that he absolutely had to have. It was the place that, it was the, it was, it was the thing that occupied the place that was meant for God and, and God alone. And again, it's not, it's not wrong to, to want to have a nice house or, or live in a good neighborhood, but if it becomes the very thing that you must have, that you can't live without, that your happiness is dependent upon, well, now you've, got, now you've got to consider what it is that you've made that thing out to be. All right, let me stop right there and, and see if you have any questions or comments or concerns or, or anything. What, uh, what can I answer? Yes, Karen. Mm-hmm. I, I think of it almost as foreshadowing because when then you reference the commandments that he did not break, went to the second set of commandments rather than the first Sabbath, love the Lord your God, and so on. So, in essence, he set the bar a little lower. I mean, he had to You mean the rich young ruler set the bar a little bit low? by focusing on the second it's a little bit harder to measure when you're holding it up against the first set. Right. and i've heard it said this it's very interesting uh, observation what karen is saying is, is saying that uh that the rich young rulers focus on the second half was was because a little bit more easy to measure when you look at the first set of commandments, <clears throat> one through four, a little bit more difficult to gauge is it's based on faith. But here's the reality. The, and again, I, I'm sure there's wisdom behind this, the way that God set these all, all out. The first commandment, which is what, again, everything that this, this passage has to do with. If you break the first commandment, everything falls like a domino after that. You can make a good argument that any of the commandments that you've broken, two through 10, if you've done that, it's because you've ultimately broken the first commandment. And again, he, he sets it out in such a way that those things unfold, that those commandments unfold that way, uh, almost like a progression. But again, it all starts with the first commandment. And that's what Jesus was taking him back to. Go to the first commandment. Understand that. And then let's have another conversation about commandments five through 10. Very observant. Yeah. Yeah. Todd. Mm-hmm. So the young uh, ruler 
would it be if God had he already Jesus already knew his where his eyes were going, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that sets up everything. So he walked up, it's not that he said anything, you know, he knew his heart. Yeah, Jesus absolutely knew. Todd is asking, you know, uh, was there, there's no, no, there's no revelation there to Jesus. And this is <clears throat> part of the, uh, it's, it's difficult to describe this. Yes, God, or Jesus was fully God, fully man. And so when he lived as a man, it wasn't like a man, it was as a man. And so how did Jesus know when he first came up to him that this is the state of the rich young ruler's mind? There was something that informed him. And that's the, 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 the divine side, right? If I could say that again, we shouldn't split them. We shouldn't split his natures, but it was the deity that, that, that or God himself that informed Jesus that, okay, he had the ability, we're told in John, John 2, that, uh, that Jesus had the ability to see through the heart of man. And so before this rich young ruler had anything to say to him, he knew, he knew, he saw his heart and he knew his problem is, is idolatry of money. And so he was able to start the conversation that, that way. That's why it's difficult to compare the way that you or I would evangelize to the way Jesus would evangelize. Because Jesus sees the heart of man. He sees the heart. And so before he even said a word, he goes, I know exactly where I'm going to take this guy. And I know exactly what I'm going to confront him on. And ultimately, it would not surprise me. I don't know this. But it would not surprise me if one day we see the rich young ruler in heaven. Because it said he loved him. He loved him. And he, yes, he did walk away disappointed. But we don't know what happened after that. But again because Jesus confronted him on his true idol. And I think that makes all the difference in terms of how we come to the Father, how we come to the Savior. We have to be able to confront uh, through God, through his mercy, confront our own idols. Yeah. Uh, Don't play poker with Jesus. (laughs) That's a winning (laughs) or losing uh, venture. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Esther. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, under, and, and uh, what Esther is saying here is that this passage has always bothered a little bit because uh, of the, the way that it unfolded. It was, it was like, uh, go, it almost seems like Jesus said, go do these things. <clears throat> and that's why I walked away disappointed. But the thing is, is that really, that's why I made the distinction between uh, righteous disappointment and, and, and whatnot is because there is a point before we come to Jesus where we will be disappointed. What are we disappointed about? that we can't uphold the law ourselves. And that's why I've heard Scott say a number of times, you know, from the front, I've heard other people say it too. The only thing you need is need itself to come to Jesus. When you have that realization that I don't have what it takes. And I think that's where the rich young ruler was. He got to the point where he's saying, I don't have what it takes to be able to, to do what is required to get to heaven. That is true for every single Christian. Every single Christian that has ever been has to come to that point where they realize, I don't have what it takes. And it's disappointment. But fortunately, there's someone there to rescue us from that disappointment and say, I'll do it for you. Great observation. Great question. Um, I'm about to steal one of those water bottles. <laughs> I'm driving out. Uh, yes. Kim. It would just be Kim. Thank you. 
Yeah, and he loved him. Right. Despite the sin, he was still loved. And, and Kim is pointing out that Jesus had the ability to, to see individuals. And again, and you brought up the, uh, the two Marys in, <clears throat> in the tomb of, uh, or excuse me, at the, at the death of Lazarus. I thought that was very interesting. Two very different reactions for the two different Marys. Uh, you know, one was challenging, one was pushing back, and one was just straight up consolation because he does have the ability to see uh, the heart of, of, uh, of man and, and respond accordingly. And, and what, what lesson do we take from that is that uh, we can't treat everyone the same. You know, there's a different response for, for different people, for different situations. And yeah, it does rely upon uh, guidance from the Holy Spirit to how we, how we respond in every given situation. But again, we know that there are numerous different ways to do that, all rooted in his word all rooted in pointing, because again, all of Jesus' responses were always rooted in the word, obviously, right? Same thing for us. Yeah. Someone else? All right. That gives us, ooh, five minutes for those of you who haven't been to the service. So <laughs> let me close this in a word of prayer, and then uh, let me make sure there's no one online that had a comment. Okay. All right. Anytime y'all want to comment, I'm glad to entertain your comments online too. Thanks for being here, folks, uh, both online and in person. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for what we read here today. And, uh, and again, as I said, this is so challenging to me personally because it, it does require us to take a deep, long, hard look at the things in our life, lives and, and, uh, and take real inventory. What is it that makes us happy? What is it that makes us uh, have um, an identity? Father, help us all come to the place that we realize it's only in you. Only our life in you, only our identity in you as people that have been loved and redeemed by a God who loves us, uh, that gives us value, that gives us worth, and help us to just leave whatever else it is beyond and behind, uh, and help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, uh, and Father, help us to find true satisfaction in that. Uh, be with us as we go our different ways. Be with us as we worship. Be with us as we uh, take this to, uh, to our neighbors and friends and, and families and colleagues. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Have a great week.